You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode 224 of You Don't Know Flat. I'm your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about Weird Al. This is not just a look at Weird Al's career or Weird Al's life, but this is my personal history with the man himself. Not that we're close personal friends, but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, before we get started talking about uh, my history with Weird Al, I have recorded this week's notes on an old cassette tape. This is an old Dr. Demento tape that I used to have. So I've got to rewind that and get everything set up. And while I'm doing all that, that'll give us a few minutes to chat on this week's Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Loading Time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Boy, spring is almost here. It is the uh, end of February, and one thing that I love about spring is that means it's garage sale season. <laughs> garage sale season is almost here. I'm so excited, even though I'm not really sure why. It's been a long time since I found some great treasure at a garage sale, but I keep going. I always go. I always think there's hope that I'll find something. I really like when they do the neighborhood garage sales because you can hit a whole bunch of garage sales in a close area, you know, one neighborhood. So I really like when neighborhoods do that. So looking forward to garage sale season this year. I just went to my first garage sale of the year. This was a church garage sale where members of the church all bring things to the church. So that's kind of like a, a smaller version of a neighborhood garage sale. Unfortunately, this one was 95% clothes and clothes for children and girls, mostly. Not that I would was looking, I mean, they never have clothes for me anyway, but they didn't have clothes mostly for adults that I saw. Uh, I did buy two things, though. I am always looking for lamps. One of the things uh, I, I more and more, the older I get and uh, the more that my uh, eyesight gets a little worse is I always need light. I always need the area where I'm working to be well lit. And I saw one of those little lamps that has a spring loaded clamp on the end that you can attach to a shelf or a monitor or something like that. And this is a really heavy duty lamp. It's all metal. It's exactly the type of lamp that I had in mind that I've been looking for. I saw some at I think target not too long ago for like 15 or $18. And I just wasn't willing to spend that. I knew I'd come across one during garage sale season. And luckily I found one, the very first garage sale that I, I went to. The one downside is that it is pink, and I'm trying to think of how to describe It's a, a dark pink. It's not like a very light pink. Um, it's a very 80s kind of pink. I kind of dig it. Uh, it's not 
wouldn't be my first choice. <laughs> Not going to lie for a lamp that I would have right here in my computer room, but uh, it'll work. It does the job. So I bought that. And I also have been looking for a clock and that's something else that was on my mental list to keep an eye out for this year during garage sale season. And the first garage sale we went to, I found a clock. Now there's no clock out in my workshop. And so I've been looking for a clock to hang on the wall out there. This clock is a little smaller than what I was envisioning, but it'll do for now. It is a red clock, and inside the clock is Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and Mickey Mouse's hands uh, tell the time. So I got both of those items together for $5. That's kicked off the garage sale season for me. So I'm looking forward to... Boy, you know, back in the old days, I had lots of stories about finding computers and Atari consoles and games and VHS tapes and all kind all the stuff that I love I found at garage sales and a lot of that stuff just I mean it got sold or got thrown out there's just not that that much of it available anymore but I'm kind of wondering like if we're not going to experience a resurgence of that stuff and I have a theory I think a lot of people hoarded a lot of that stuff in hopes that they were going to sell it and make a lot of money. And, and so a lot of those people bought that stuff in hopes of uh, flipping it or making some money. And then it turned out they didn't make that much money <laughs> or there were the people that bought those things and then didn't use them. And so I got a feeling that that stuff is going to get resold. That's my theory. Um, I don't know if that applies to the VHS tapes, but things like old video game consoles and Nintendos and, you know, I like the Nintendo, I think Nintendo in particular, like it's a very nostalgic looking system. I mean, so is the Atari. So are a lot of the classic consoles. And I suppose any console you grew up with has a, uh, has the potential to give off nostalgic vibes, but something like the Nintendo, it takes a certain kind of person that wants to own a Nintendo at this point. I mean, first of all, I think I could be wrong, but I think you have to be of a certain age. I think you have to be someone who had a Nintendo as a kid, uh, I mean, I don't like my kids have no interest in owning an original Nintendo. They would love a Nintendo switch and they might play original Nintendo games on that, but they don't want an original Nintendo because then you got to buy original Nintendo cartridges. I mean, we're assuming that the average person doesn't know about flash cards and things like that. So I don't know what the market is. I mean, the market has to be people that are nostalgic enough for an NES that didn't get around to buying one in the past 20 years or whatever. So, uh, and, and then, you know, we had like the NES mini, that sort of thing. And of course, if you just want to play something like uh, super Mario brothers three, I mean, if you're a technical person, you're probably got it in an emulation, you're playing it on your PC. But even if you don't, I think a lot of those games, I mean, obviously they were available on the Wii, uh, they're available on the Wii U. I assume most of those, or at least some of those, are available on the Switch. So I don't know. I don't know what the market is for that stuff. I got a feeling that stuff is going to get resold again, and we're going to see a resurgence. Uh, just like, you know, I, uh, I went to a garage sale last year, and there was uh, record players and cassette decks and things and stuff that I hadn't seen at garage sales. In about 10 years, people snatched that stuff up and thought they, you know, that it was gold and the stuff that didn't sell, I think people hung on to and kept and uh, are now releasing it back into the wild. So we'll see. I'm always excited about garage sale season and going out and seeing what we can find. So looking forward to that. 
Uh, I got a, oh, you know what? Before I did get a question for Patreon this week, but before we get into that, I want to talk for just for a minute about my iMudo battery situation. Now, uh, the iMudo is a battery that I bought off of Amazon and I bought this for my van project. And this is essentially, if you want to imagine, it's like more or less, it's like a, I mean, it's a lithium ion, but it's like a car battery in a plastic box with a handle on it. And on the front of it, it has USB charging ports. It has DC 12 volt ports and it has 110. It has a, a, a inverter built into it. So you can plug 110 things. And this thing can be charged up and it holds a thousand watt hours. So, uh, it's meant for people that are going camping or a lot of people doing the van life and all that stuff use these things. And so, um, the name brand, the biggest name brand in this is Jackery and the Jackery sells one, uh, that holds a thousand watt hours of juice for a, a little over a thousand dollars. It's like $1,100. And then their closest competitor is blue Eddy. And they have one that's comparable uh, for about the same price as well. But I found this knockoff uh, Chinese brand on Amazon called iMudo. And they have the same battery or the same – it's not the same battery, but the same uh, capacity battery. And they had it on sale for three ninety nine, dollars <laughs> which is so cheap. And so I bought this thing six months ago, and I haven't used it very often. I charged it all the way up. It's out of my workshop, so I haven't been using it. Every now and then I, I plug something in just to make sure that it's working. Uh, but I went out to check it recently, and it's acting like it's possessed. It was turning itself off and on. The LED display that's supposed to show the percentage of its charged was uh, going from 100% to 0% to 9999, uh, and then it stopped charging anything. So um, it, has, it has since uh, regained its mind. <laughs> it lost its mind for a while, and it's now regained its mind. Uh, but here's, here's the issue that I have. When I got this thing, I played with it for a week. I charged it up. I charged some other stuff. It worked great. And then I made a video about it, a video review that I uploaded to YouTube. And I also uploaded to Amazon talking about what a great product it was. And based on that review, the company even sent me some other items to review. Now, I will say the items that they sent me were worth, uh, they sell it. It's like a, one of them is a USB wall wart that you plug in you, and you plug USB cables into it. So, you know, things that sell for $20, they didn't send me a $500 item. Um, but they did take my video and chop it up into little bits and they are using it on uh, their website. If you go to Amazon and you look up the iMudo thousand watt battery uh, and you go through, you know, how, when you go to an Amazon product, it has the, you know, pictures and little links up at the top. My face is there. <laughs> it's like, I'm an official spokesman now for this company. And they took my video and chopped it up into little smaller videos and they have it right there on the Amazon page. So when people want to know about this battery, they're clicking on videos and I'm explaining what a great product this is. And now I don't know that I agree with everything that I said in those videos. I, I agreed with what I thought at the time when I used it for a week, I thought it was pretty good, but it has a three-year warranty and now it won't charge anything or it wouldn't charge anything. I couldn't even get it to turn on at one point. 
and it's supposed to have a three-year warranty. So I contacted the company and they wouldn't respond to me. <laughs> now, they have a representative uh, who is the person who reached out to me and sent me the other products to review. I reached out back to her. I have her email address and said, hey, uh, can you put me in contact with the warranty people? Uh, they're they're not responding to me. And she would not respond to me. So I got radio silence from the company and from her. So I basically had to go to Amazon and say, this company has a warranty and they're not honoring it. And they said they would try to contact the company. And wouldn't you know it, within 24 hours, I got a response from Amazon and the company. And they said, hey, uh, we'll be issuing you a refund, uh, which they did uh, within another 24 hours. I got the money immediately put back on my credit card. Uh, and then a couple of days later, I went out there to basically – what I wanted to do was plug something into it and kind of run down the battery so that it wasn't – I didn't have this charged battery sitting out in my workshop that I didn't trust. And it has been working fine. Now, it's not – I won't say fine because it has done the same thing where it resets itself and it turns itself off and on. Um, you know, when it comes to electronics, I would much rather something fail than just act uh, – odd. <laughs> uh, because if it fails, I don't have any problem throwing it into the trash. But the fact that this thing works right three-fourths of the time uh, means that I can't, in my heart, throw it away because I know three out of four times it'll work, but it also means I can't trust it. I can't depend on it. So uh, I think in the future, I'm going to be a little bit more careful about the things that I review that I make videos for. Uh, maybe there's a lesson in there somewhere for me. And, um, maybe I won't be, you know, so quick to, uh, endorse a brand without uh, thoroughly testing something. And again, I did test it for a week and I thought my, my assumption was that if you got it and it worked on day one and you used it, then it would continue to work. So my theory was if I was going to get a dud, I would know it on the first time I used it and it worked fine when I first used it, but, um, but it certainly didn't last as long as the big name brand. So again, probably uh, a lesson in there for me somewhere, just having trouble seeing it <laughs> or admitting it possibly. So, uh, anyway, I did mention that I got a Patreon question, uh, for this episode. And the question was, what is the oldest video game console that I currently own? And that is a great question. I had to actually go out in my workshop and go through my inventory and look up some dates to figure out what that was. And my go-to answer was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Um, now, uh, the Odyssey 2, even though graphically I don't – know that it's as good as the Atari 2600. I, you know, it's a comparable system to the Atari 2600, but in my mind, it's older than the Atari 2600, even though it's not because we had it first. We, my parents, um, did not get an Atari the year it came out. And then the Odyssey two had a keyboard. And so it was supposed to be this much better, you know, uh, like it was a computer, right? So that was the first gaming system that we had gaming console was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. But that was released in September of 1978. Now, I know that I have multiple Atari 2600 VCS consoles. Um, in fact, I just got a new one 
uh, well, not new, but new to me, uh, a couple of months ago. And the Atari 2600 is older than that. The Atari 2600 is uh, was released in North America, anyway, in September of 1977. But then I started thinking, do I have anything that's older than that? And I have a Pong system uh, that was made by a company called Roberts. And this is the Roberts Rally 4. And the 4 is in Roman numerals. It is IV. And this is the first console that we ever personally owned uh, in my family. And it was a Pong console. And I know that I remember we owned it when we lived in our very first house, which we moved uh, out of in the spring of 78. So I know that we had it before then. And I looked it up in the launch date. All I could find was 1977. Uh, and so since we uh, did not own, since we owned the uh, Odyssey 2 before the Atari, that would have been 78. So this is definitely older than that, the Roberts Rally 4. But I recently acquired something that is a little bit older than that. Uh, I was contacted by uh, an old classmate who said, hey, I have uh, an old Nintendo if you want it in the box, and there's two parts to it. And I said, okay. Uh, I said, I will stop by and pick it up if you don't want it. He said, I don't want it. I'm going to throw it away. So first of all, by Nintendo, he meant Atari 2600, <laughs> which is fine. It is what it is. Um, and this thing had so much dirt on it. It was like it had been buried in the dirt and stayed there for a while and then had been dug up. Uh, it was so dirty that... Uh, you know how on an original 2600, the woodies where it has the wood paneling on the front or fake wood paneling on the front, and then the rest is black? It was kind of all the same color. It was kind of all the same color as that wood paneling, kind of that reddish-brown color. Uh, and so, and it was in this big box and it was so filthy that I haven't touched it. I probably got it a year ago, actually, to be honest with you. And it's been sitting in a box for a year because, number one, I'm not – Hard up right now for an Atari 2600. I've got several, um, and uh, I knew it was just going to be a cleaning project. So I just saved it for a rainy day. But that rainy day came, and I decided I would go ahead and clean it up. And so when I removed it from the box, I found something underneath it. And what was underneath it was an Odyssey 500. Now, the Odyssey 500, uh, Magnavots released a series of uh, Pong machines uh, now if you know your history, if you don't know your history, stop this podcast and go look up Ralph Baer. That's B-A-E-R, um, who is the uh, the father, the grandfather of home video games. Uh, he he made the original Odyssey, which predates Pong and showed it at a electronic show. So there's a lot of history there. Um, so they the original Odysseys were more or less Pong type systems. It's it's weird to call it Pong if Pong came afterwards, right? But but essentially that's what they are. They are a ball and paddle style games. And depending on the model, the games they would have more games or more features and things like that. So the uh the Magnavox Odyssey, the original one, there was like a 300, 400, 500, and the 500 was like the top of the line, which is what this is. Um it had color 
instead of little paddles, like on the sides where in, like if you think about Pong, the ball goes back and forth and, and you move paddles up and down. This had little tiny pictures of, of sports guys, like little tiny square blocky tennis players and squash players and stuff. So you were playing the game and you were moving tennis players up and down. So it was really pretty advanced for its time. And I looked it up and this was released in 1976. So the Magnavox Odyssey 500 released in 1976 is the oldest video game console or computer that I own. Now, just uh, some interesting stuff I found on the Odyssey 500. Uh, mine did not have the original box, but I looked it up on eBay, and I, lo- I found a picture of the original box. And there's some interesting uh, text on the top of it. It says, digital on-screen scoring, displays each player's score. These are all selling features. Uh, action sound for gamer realism. Vertical, horizontal speed, and English controls for exciting action. Automatic serve adds greater challenge to each game full color playing fields and players and then in parentheses only when used with a color tv so just so in case you thought you had a black and white tv and you thought it would be color no it will not be and includes the ac adapter uh and it says uh the the games are uh, smash hockey tennis and soccer but at the very top and this is the thing i thought was interesting is it says works on any TV, color or black and white. Now, to those of us today that are reading that, we would just think, oh, works on any TV, color or black or white. So it seems like what this, what they're trying to tell us is that whether you have a black and white or a color television, that this will work and you can play these games. And there's a part of it that if you weren't there at the time, you would completely overlook, which says works on any TV. Now, why that is important is because there was confusion in the early days and a lot of people missed understood and thought that the because it was made by Magnavox, the Magnavox Odyssey, that it only worked with Magnavox televisions. And so a lot of people skipped over this and went and bought Pong because they said, oh, Pong will work on anything. But the Magnavox Odyssey, you've got to have a Magnavox. So that's uh, why that's the number one thing listed, uh, not just because the color or black or white TV, but when it says works on any TV, that's what they're stressing is you don't have to have a Magnavox brand television, even though I'm sure they would have preferred if you had a Magnavox TV. So anyway, uh, Magnavox Odyssey 500, I believe that is the oldest video game console or computer I own. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. If you would like to have a question answered on this podcast or would simply like to support my shows, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to sign up today and join supporters like Mark Alley, Mr. Bundy, and Armadon Restel. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. And again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. Well, this cassette tape has fully rewound. I've got all my show notes ready to go. So let's get started talking about this episode's topic, 
Weird Al. When I was a kid, I was really into funny magazines and books. I loved Mad Magazine. I loved Cracked Magazine. I had a collection of joke books. I had a collection of those compilation books made up of comic strips, like from uh, Family Circus and Wizard of Id and Hagar the Horrible. I loved all that stuff. I was also a fan of music. I was there on day one when MTV launched. I loved music videos and I loved listening to the radio and buying 45s and records before I started collecting cassettes. Um, and uh, we also had a video camera and I liked making my own videos. I even made some parodies as a kid. There was a uh, TV show called That's Incredible and I got my friends together and we made a short video called That's Incredibly Stupid where we <laughs> did silly stunts that were really easy and stupid to do. So that is a combination. Kids that like funny stuff, kids that like music, and kids especially that liked parodies. Um, you put all those together and what you have right there is the makings of a lifelong fan of Weird Al Yankovic. Now, I was about 10 and a half years old when I first heard Weird Al's first big single, which was Eat It. Obviously, that was a parody of Michael Jackson's Beat It, which was a huge song, and Eat It was a huge song in its own right. Now, I don't honestly remember if I heard it first on the radio or if I saw the video on MTV, but the MTV video was also very, very uh, famous because it was a shot-for-shot -shot parody of Michael Jackson's Beat It with lots of jokes and funny things inserted into the video. So, I mean, if you go back and you look at who I was as a kid, a kid that liked funny magazines and a kid that liked music and a kid that liked parodies, I mean, this is something that was tailor-made for me. Now, the single for Eat It was released today, which is February 28th, all the way back in 1984. Uh, it, it's amazing. So it's 39 years ago that that song came out. And I heard it on the radio, and I wanted to own it. And so I remember asking my mom uh, if she would take me with her grocery shopping to Skaggs Alpha Beta. Now, Skaggs was a local grocery store that we used to go to that was 90% groceries, 95% groceries. But in the front part of the store, they had a little separate section that was for electronics. I remember they had an Atari 2600 kiosk and they had an entire record section and they had some other electronics like maybe transistor radios or, or um, you know, maybe Walkmans eventually, things like that. But uh, I definitely remember going there. Uh, when my mom would go grocery shopping, that's the part of the store I would hang out in. And that is where we went when I got uh, the Eat It 45. So that was my very first Weird Al record. Anything that I owned of Weird Al's was the 45 of Eat It, which I listened to probably nonstop for a long, long time. 
Now, the B-side to that 45 was a song from Weird Al's second album, Weird Al in 3D. Uh, and it was a song called That Boy Could Dance. And I remember really enjoying that song. So I don't think I understood at the time what Weird Al did, like what what all he did. But I would find out because I got Weird Al's second album, which was called Weird Al Yankovic in 3D. A lot of times people just call it in 3D. Uh, but I got that album uh, not long after I got the 45. Um, I don't remember how long, but maybe, um, you know, it was that summer, something like that. Um, but, uh, uh just to backtrack for just a second, I listened to Eat It all the time, but I also loved the song That Boy Could Dance. And That Boy Could Dance is a complete uh, original song. So it's not a parody, you know, of another song or anything like that. Um, it, it, but it was about this this kid uh, who they used to make fun of when he was, when he was younger. Um, he was a geek. <laughs> he was a scrawny, uh, little four eyed geek and all this stuff. He was not popular. And, um, but the only thing is, is that he could dance really well. That boy could dance. And so the song goes on. And then at the end, we find out that he grew up and he became, uh, a famous dancer. He has his own uh, TV show. He owns half of Montana. <laughs> It says, um, and, uh, and, and everybody's jealous of him because he's become so successful. And so as a kid, especially if you're kind of a nerdy kid, a kid who uh, at 10 years old was into computers and video games and all the things that I talked about, uh, what a fun, uh, you know, thing that you wanted to relate to is that, that there was this other kid, uh, who was, you know, the same way he was kind of geeky. He was kind of unpopular and he went on to succeed in life and he became very popular. Everybody wanted to be just like him as the song says at the end, cause that boy could dance. And so, uh, I really related to that song. I really enjoyed that song. So what two great songs to get a kid hooked on weird out. So I did get in 3D uh, on vinyl. This is a vinyl album. This is before uh, I had cassettes or a cassette player. Um, and uh, that album really kind of has a little bit of everything that Weird Al became known for. It has parody songs. It has what he refers to as style parodies. Uh, it has original songs and then it has a polka medley, which not all of his albums have polka medleys, but most of them have had that. And so, uh, so for a parody song, that would be like, eat it. You know, it's a parody of Michael Jackson's beat it. Uh, but then he had a style parody. So like, there's a song on there called, uh, gonna buy me a condo <laughs> and it's a reggae, uh, and he calls that a style parody of a Bob Marley song, but it's not any specific Bob Marley song. He's just kind of taken the, the feeling of Bob Marley in general. And so those he refers to as style parodies. So he's copying uh, an artist's style, but not a specific song. Uh, and then he had original songs, like I mentioned, That Boy Could Dance. And then, again, the uh, Polka Medley, which was a mashup of a bunch of popular songs at the time, but played uh, in the form of a accordion-led polka. So 
you know, I think a lot of my friends and a lot of people in general saw Weird Al at that time as a one-hit wonder. He was the eat-it guy. He even jokingly refers to himself as the eat-it guy, and a lot of other people referred to him as the eat-it guy. But he was not a one-hit wonder to me. I mean, when I heard that album, I loved every song on it. Nature Trail to Hell is a classic that's on there. He has a, the Brady Bunch song, which is to the, the tune of Safety Dance. Um, that That's one of Weird Al's albums that I can listen to from beginning to end. I love every song on that. The Ryder the Kaiser is a, uh, uh, a like a parody of... Um, Eye of the Tiger, and it's about Rocky in his old age. Now he works at a a meat deli, and he he, <laughs> he serves meat and at in the back, it's, he beats up on the meat and stuff like that. So, uh, it's a really funny song, and it's it's a really great album. Um, I so like I said, I I didn't understand why everybody didn't love Weird Al, and not just again, not just eat it, but all of his stuff. I just thought I just thought the guy was a genius, you know. Uh, in, in fifth, this might've been fifth or sixth grade. Uh, we had a, a music teacher at school. We had, you know, everybody had music class in elementary school and the music teacher decided to do this thing where we could bring songs off of the radio and you had to bring a copy of the lyrics. You had to type up the lyrics somehow and if you did that, she would make copies and hand it out and let us sing those songs in music class, uh, which is a really cool thing because you're still learning, uh, you know, the basics of music and notes and things like that. But you're doing it with music that that kids enjoy. I always thought that was I didn't appreciate it, of course, at the time. But looking back, I always thought that's a really cool approach to get kids um, to enjoy singing and, and music and things like that. And I remember uh, one kid brought um, Let's Go Crazy by Prince. I remember we sang that, uh, which is weird because it has the part where like it's like heavy breathing where then she drops the phone and he can hear her having sex with someone else, which is awkward uh, for fifth graders to be singing. And I remember they brought Footloose. Somebody else brought Footloose. But I brought Eat It. <laughs> And brought uh, the lyrics, and uh, I don't think that the the album had the lyrics on it because either either at that time I only had the forty five maybe uh, or the album didn't have the lyrics. I don't remember which which it was, but I I just had to listen to the the song over and over and type up what the lyrics. And I had a very um, silly typo or, or phrase that I could not figure out. There's a line um, in in Eat It. That says, if you starve to death, you'll just have yourself to blame. So eat it. It's because he, he won't eat his food, you know. And so, so if you starve to death, it's your fault. And for some reason, I wrote, if you start to death, like if you, I, it doesn't even make sense. And I remember turning that in. And then the teacher was like, I think it's probably starved to death. And I remember looking at it and being really embarrassed and going, boy, that, that makes that makes much more sense than what I wrote. Why would you start to death? I don't know. That doesn't mean it doesn't even mean anything. So, um, but yeah, um, I brought eat it. All the kids begrudgingly. I mean, I think I won't say begrudgingly because I think, I think some kids enjoyed it, but you know, that's, Man, sixth grade is right when uh, there's that age where uh, they're starting to separate from the pack, the cool kids from everyone else. And I'm sure not everyone 
was interested in seeing Weird Al, but you know what? Too bad for them. I brought it, uh, and that's the way it worked. Now, uh, that album came out, uh, I believe I said in the spring of 1994 or 1984. Uh, and Weird Al knew he had to strike when the iron was hot. And so the following year he came out. Now I remember this, this is in 1985. Uh, so I was, and I remember I was 11 years old and I was riding in the car and I heard, I want a new duck. <laughs> And of course, Huey Lewis was huge at this time uh, with his song, I Want a New Drug. And so when I heard, I want a new duck, I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Now, I, now looking at uh, Wikipedia, I think that Like a Surgeon came before I Want a New Duck. And so that was probably, I probably saw Like a Surgeon on MTV before I heard I want a new duck, but that's what I remember. I remember hearing, I want a new duck. I was sitting in the back of my mom's station wagon and that came on. Uh, and in fact, there's a line in there. Uh, oh, the, one of the lines to this day that makes me laugh is, um, uh, that he's talking about, uh, all these things that he wants a new duck. So the duck will teach him how to do things. And he says, he wants to, he wants the duck to show him how to get down and then he repeats it and then he says, get it? Which is really funny if you think about it because it's kind of a double joke. Obviously, he wants the duck to teach him how to dance uh, and how to get down. But also, down pillows are made from feathers. <laughs> and he wants to show him how to get down. Uh, and But like I said, then he says, in case you're thinking, ah, maybe, maybe he didn't intend for that to be the joke. Then he goes, get it? <laughs> so very funny song. Uh, and then you've got the title track of that album, which is dare to be stupid. And, you know, that boy could dance for me. It was a song I could kind of relate to, except for I couldn't dance. So I was that boy could not dance, but, uh, but I could relate to it in the way or not relate to it, but, um, I wanted to relate to it because I, you know, it's about a kid that's unpopular in, in school and he grows up and he becomes popular, but um, but I mean, that that story is really about somebody transforming somebody again, being, you know, uh, undesirable. And then eventually they grew up and they become desirable, but dare to be stupid is kind of like a theme song for weird people and not just weird. I don't want to say weird in a negative connotation, but people that think outside the box, people that are creative, people that just march to their own drum, you know? Uh, and of course it, it, that is actually a style parody. It is done in the style of Devo, but dare to be stupid is like, you know, it's just, it's like saying, Hey man, it's okay to just be yourself, to just be a goofball, you know? And of course there's all these examples of, uh, you know, just weird things, you know, I mean, telling people that mashed potatoes can be your friend. That's an odd thing to tell kids. But, um, I mean, to me, that was like, this was like, um, you know, a mantra <laughs> almost, you know what I mean? Like this was like, dare to be stupid. Like you can embrace your individuality. And, and that song has resonated with me my entire life. I've always loved that song. Now, uh, there's another song on that album that I really, really loved. 
Uh, and that was Yoda, which was sung to the tune of the Kinks' Lola, which I don't know that I knew the song Lola, and I sure didn't know what the song Lola was about when I heard Yoda. Um, but this was 1985, so this was a couple of years after Return of the Jedi, so it's not necessarily the most timely thing because it talks about the events in Empire Strikes Back. So, I mean, it's really referencing a movie that was several years old by that point in time. But who didn't love Yoda and who didn't love Star Wars? And uh, it, it's kind of, uh, there are some parts in there that are kind of, uh, you know, seeing into the future. Um, and especially, you know, it's kind of, it's it's told from Luke's point of view uh, because he talks about how he met, uh, you know, he met him in a swamp down at Dagobah <laughs> where it bubbles like a giant carbonated soda, <laughs> which rhymes with Yoda. But um, at the at the end of the song, uh, he says he'll be playing this part till he's old and gray. And then he says the long-term contract I've signed says I'll be making these movies till the end of time. And, uh, you know, at the time, we knew that Star Wars was a trilogy and that was it. There was no more Star Wars movies. And, and uh, But little did we know that Mark Hamill would someday be old and gray and still making Star Wars movies. So there you go. Um, there's also one other song I would mention on there, which is cable TV. And Weird Al has always done this thing where he takes stuff and he really exaggerates it, you know, and that's kind of where the comedy comes. Uh, and this is just a silly song about how much he loves cable TV. And, um, this is one song that I don't think he exaggerated enough. Now he exaggerated at the time. I remember when we first had cable, like when my grandma had cable, she had one of those cable boxes where you used a slider to get to the channels. And I think it went into the thirties. I think it's all, all you got was like 30 something channels on cable. So in his song, he talks about how he has 83 channels of ecstasy. I love my cable TV. Um, but 83 channels, really, if you think about it, is not that much. I mean, I, I have way more than 83 channels on my cable today, you know? So it's, it's like he didn't exaggerate it enough. And, and when he's talking about some of the things, uh, the television shows that are supposed to be silly and ridiculous, you know, I mean, like so outlandish that they could never happen. He talks about, um, he makes a reference to the celebrity hockey and then the racquetball channel, which of course were supposed to be really silly, goofy things. Uh, and I don't know that I've seen celebrity hockey, but we've definitely had celebrity boxing <laughs> and we've had other celebrity things like that. So, um, the, the idea of, I, I know we, MTV had celebrity baseball. You remember when they did that? So celebrity hockey is not really, um, you know, that far fetched. And again, the racquetball channel. Okay. So it's, so we don't have a racquetball channel, but, uh, I mean, there's times where I turn on TV and, and all it is, is, you know, tennis things or Olympics or stuff. So it's just not that, um, out of the realm of impossibility. And the funniest thing is he makes a big joke. Uh, and he says he put a satellite dish on the trunk of his car so he can watch MTV while he drives. Well, Weird Al's career, 
uh, has outlasted MTV or at least the MTV that we knew at that time that played music videos. Um, but that's supposed to be a good, I mean, that's a big joke. It's supposed to get a big laugh is that how crazy would that be to have a satellite dish installed on your car so that you could watch MTV in your car. But today, all of us have the ability to watch television in our car. We can stream anything that we want, including Weird Al videos from YouTube. So uh, this is a song, this is one song that whenever I hear it, I just always think, um, you know, uh, there, there's another song on the album uh, called Midnight Star that that is crazy tabloid headlines talking about Hitler's brain in a jar and all those silly headlines that you would see on the tabloids. And of course those are so outlandish that they're funny, right? But it, but what's funny about this one song cable TV is that all the stuff that he talks about being so crazy and outlandish, a lot of it has kind of come to pass. So, so anyway, there I was, I was a happy little kid. I had my two weird Al albums. I had in 3d, uh, which I thought was the first weird Al album, which it turns out it was not. There's a, an album that's earlier than that, that I'll be talking about. Um, and then there was uh, dare to be stupid, which I absolutely loved as well. I would listen to my two albums. Then in 1986, which was the following year, another Weird Al album came out. Uh, and this was called Polka Party. And the big single that came was, uh, well, there were two singles that I remember. One was Living with a Hernia, which was based on Living in America, the James Brown song from uh, Rocky. And uh, there was also Here's Johnny, which was kind of a fun song. Uh, and it was um, a parody of the DeBarge song of uh, Here's Johnny, which was Johnny Five from Short Circuit. But this is Here's Johnny, Johnny Carson. Uh, and it's uh, Ed McMahon. Is, it's about Ed McMahon introducing you know Johnny Carson. But I didn't really hear the same kind of, of comedy that I heard on those first two albums. I didn't hear anything that grabbed me, and I didn't actually – Buy this album. I did not own Polka Party back when I was a kid. Um, you know, I didn't really care about James Brown parodies. Um, and so there just wasn't, there wasn't anything. There wasn't a big hit single. And of course, today when, when Weird Al talks about it, you know, he talks about how he was just getting constant pressure from the music companies to get back in there. And, you know, I mean, Nobody thought Weird Al's career was going to last 40 years. So, uh, you know, every time they hit a successful album, they were like, great, do it again, do it now. <laughs> Let's keep riding this wave. And so that was the first time where I thought, you know what, Weird Al might not be around forever. Like, this might not be something that, uh, um, you know, a, a sustainable form of comedy entertainment. And part of that came... Because in 1987, which was a year after Polka Party, is the same year that I discovered Dr. Demento. Now, uh, Weird Al famously uh, was on Dr. Demento. He had mailed him tapes. Everybody knows if you've seen uh, the, the Weird Al movie uh, or, or know anything about Weird Al uh, that he had gone to the Dr. Demento studio. He performed Another One Rides the Bus live. That's where he met his drummer, John Bermuda Schwartz. Uh, and so Weird Al had a long relationship with uh, Dr. Demento. He constantly was mailing Dr. Demento new songs and parodies that he had recorded. 
So I discovered Dr. Demento, and then I found out that there were a lot of funny songs. Uh, there were a lot of people doing parodies. There were uh, a lot of uh, comedy out there, and it was all free. It was on this radio show. And I had blank cassette tapes, so I would record the Dr. Demento show, and I would listen to those. And I thought a lot of those songs were just as funny as the Weird Al stuff. So I kind of thought, you know what? Maybe maybe this Weird Al thing is over. Maybe that was it. He had he was the eat it guy, and he was the dare to be stupid guy, and then that might be it. Um. That turned around for Al the first time. And Weird Al has made so many comebacks. Like every album that's that's big, it seems like a comeback for him. Uh, but the first big comeback for him was the album Even Worse in 1988. Um, because he did the parody of Fat. Uh, or the parody of Michael Jackson's Bad. Um, and there were some other popular ones at the time. I think I'm a Clone Now was on there. Um but, uh, oh, and also, uh, this song is just six words long, which was a parody of I Got My Mind Set on You, which was just seemed like it was that phrase over and over. So that was kind of a, uh, a parody, but also self referential to that actual song that was being, uh, you know, parodied. Um, but here's the problem with that he was parodying Michael Jackson, great, and, and that worked out for him. Uh, and he was parodying, uh, George Harrison, the song is just six words long and, uh, Tiffany, you know, I think I'm a clone now. Those were big singles and this is 1988, but leading up to that in 1987, uh, for me personally, that was the release of guns and roses appetite for destruction. That was the year NXS kick came out. That was the year the cures Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me album came out. White Snake's self-titled album came out that year. Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. Um, I was just uh, really had, had moved from a casual fan of rap to finding more artists. Uh, that was the year LL Cool J's album came out. Public Enemy had an album. And then 1988, um, before... Weird Al's album. So this would be in the first uh, three months, I guess, of 1988. You got Megadeth, So Far, So Good, So What. You've got the Smithereens. You got King's X. Um, Iron Maiden, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, which was a huge album for me. Uh, and you had Headbangers Ball. So I was watching Headbangers Ball. And so my musical tastes, uh, I was starting to develop who I was as a fan of music. And it wasn't, I won't say that it wasn't Weird Al because I don't want to say, I'm, I'm not going to say it because I don't want to believe it. But what I can say is that it didn't include the artists that he was making parodies of. He wasn't doing parodies of, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses or The Cure or Whitesnake or Motley Crue. Um, he was doing parodies of pop top 40 songs like, you know, Tiffany. Um, and Michael Jackson. And that was stuff that I wasn't really listening to at that point. Now, I'm going to backtrack uh, and the time just a little bit and talk about uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was released in 1985. I saw it when I was 12, and I thought it was the funniest movie that I'd ever seen. 
Uh, I saw it in the movie theater. My friends all saw it. We all thought it was funny when we were 12. I remember being in high school and people still referencing Pee-wee's Big Adventure five years later. Um, and, and that became, you know, uh, even, even his, uh, uh, TV show, the Pee-wee's Playhouse. When I was at high school, junior, high school, senior, people were still watching Pee-wee's Playhouse. It was just kind of a in retro thing. Uh, Gumby was another thing in my senior year that, that people had glommed onto. Um, but I remember watching Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Pee-wee's Playhouse and thinking, why isn't Weird Al doing this? Why isn't Weird Al – I mean, Weird Al is made for this kind of thing, right? Uh, he could be making funny movies like Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He could be doing TV shows. And he would, but it just hadn't done it yet. So Pee-wee's Big Adventure came out in 1985, and it wasn't for another four years until we saw, dare I say, the greatest film of all time. And that would be, <laughs> which you could not say, uh, but that would be Weird Al's UHF, released in 1989, July of 1989. Uh, so this was the summer before my junior year. I definitely saw this in the movie theater. I went to the movies to go see this. Uh, it starts Weird Al as George Newman, who is this guy who uh, his um, uh, rich relatives win a UHF television station in a poker game. And they basically, uh, Weird Al needs a job. And so they make him the manager of this UHF television station. And so, um, it becomes to, to make the channel or the, the station succeed. He needs to come up with a bunch of TV shows and a bunch of commercials, which really, if you think about it is just a framework where you can put parodies. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically what the movie is, is a series of all these parodies with, with a, a bigger story on it. That's not incredibly original, but you know, who cares? It's weird. Al being weird Al, right? Uh, and you got some famous people in this movie. You got Victoria Jackson, uh, who's his girlfriend. You've got Michael Richards, which most people know as Kramer, uh, as Stanley Spadowski, who uh, he hires on and, and is his janitor at first, but then uh, you know becomes a host of a television show. Uh, you have one of my favorite uh, little actors, which is Billy Barty, who plays Noodles, the cameraman. Billy Barty is also the Nazi spy in under the rainbow and he is a cameraman. So all his footage is pointing straight up. The camera is pointing up at this very weird angle. Uh, and the, uh, reporter that he works with is Pamela Finkelstein, who is played by Fran Drescher. Uh, so, and then what's weird is you got all these famous people and then weird Al's partner in the whole movie is an actor named David Bow, who is not he he was he became later on he became very successful as a voice actor he's done hundreds and hundreds of commercials and you probably know his voice if you um look up some of the commercials he's done but he was only in a very small number of movies very very small and this was maybe his biggest role was UHF um so it's kind of weird that the one person that they put to be his his sidekick was not uh you know as big of a name 
But man, oh man, did I love me some UHF. It starts with the Raiders of the Lost Art parody. There's all kinds of parodies. There's um, a Gandhi parody. <laughs> There's Rambo. Um, you know, the TV shows and stuff. It's it's just a super funny um, movie. And there's also, you know, he had the UHF soundtrack where he did the uh, parody of Money for Nothing. Uh, but it's the Beverly Hillbillies. You have the UHF theme. So, um, you know, this, I just thought, I thought at the time that this is going to be the change for Weird Al. I thought, you know, he's going to go on into making comedy movies. Like he made a movie. As far as I was concerned, it was, you know, success. I didn't know what the box office was, but I thought all my friends loved it. So this is the new Weird Al. Weird Al is just going to be a guy now that makes movies. But, um. Apparently, the box office may not have been uh, quite as good as what I was led to believe as a child. So, we didn't see Weird Al again for a while. In fact, it was, I think, about three years um, that uh, we didn't see Weird Al. One thing, though, you can count on is that when there is uh, something huge in the world of music, that Weird Al will not be far behind to poke fun at it. And so I graduated high school in 1991. And uh, that summer after I graduated, there's a very famous, uh, you know, period of time. I think it's 10 days or something like that, where the, all these albums were released, um, it, like within a two week period. Um, and I don't have this written down, but I, I think you get guns and roses, uh, Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, you get Metallica's Black Album, you get uh, Nirvana's Nevermind, you get, um, gosh, what else is it? Uh, and, and maybe Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, um, uh, did I say Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar, Sex Magic? Like, it's all within this very short, it's it's an amazing time. Like, if I had to pick one month of music, like, if I could only listen to music that was released in a single 30-day period, it definitely would be... Would, you know, that, that little period. Um, but August, September, right then is the birth of grunge. Within just a few months, we get um, Pearl Jam, 10. We get, of course, Nirvana, Nevermind. We get the Soundgarden album. Uh, it, it's just this amazing little explosion of uh, of music and, and of a genre that was born, right? So <clears throat> fast forward. <laughs> about six months later, and all of a sudden there's a new Weird Al video that has taken over MTV, uh, and it is his uh, Smells Like Nirvana video. So he is parodying Smells Like Teen Spirit. Not only is he doing that, but he has made an entire album. The album cover is a parody of the album cover of Nirvana's Nevermind. Um, It's called Off the Deep End in 1992, April, and... uh, I thought, well, Weird Al's back. I mean, this is another moment where Weird Al's back. Now, what I remember most about this album is that this is the first Weird Al album that I bought on CD. The um, the first two in 3D and Dare to be Stupid I had on vinyl. And I know that at some point I had Dare to be Stupid also on cassette. But this is the first one, 1992. I bought Off the Deep End and I bought it on CD. And in fact, when I started buying more and more CDs, uh, I started going back and buying all the Weird Al 
albums on CD. And this is something that I would continue to do up until today. Uh, but the old albums that I had either on, on vinyl or the ones that I didn't pick up, if I saw them out, I would buy them on CD. So we got another rapid fire, uh, time frame for Weird Al. We get in 93, we get Alapalooza, uh, which had uh, Jurassic Park, which is a great song. It had the Bedrock Anthem, which is a parody of Give It Away Now, which the Red Hot Chili Peppers were not uh, thrilled with, I would say. I've seen interviews where Flea was like, I just don't get it. I don't think it's funny, you know, because it was a uh, a parody of uh, the Flintstones. It was Yabba Dabba Yabba Dabba too now, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, which he did a video of. Uh, but yeah, that's 93. You get Alapalooza in 96. You get Bad Hair Day, which had Gump. Uh, it had Don't Go Making Phony Calls. And it had the Amish Paradise, which are uh, a parody um, of uh, Coolio's Gangster's Paradise, which, of course, is the big controversy. Everybody that talks about Weird Al talks about you know, how Coolio basically said he didn't approve it and he didn't like it. And it was a big misunderstanding because as I'm sure most people know, you probably know that weird Al seeks out the permission uh, or approval from artists before he parodies their songs, even though he does not have to do that legally. He does not have to do that. Parody is covered under the first amendment and you can release a parody of anyone's song, but weird Al's a nice guy and he doesn't want to make people mad. And so he uh, has infamously, approached every single person. And when people ask him not to do his songs, he doesn't do them. Prince is someone who turned down uh, him every single time. He said he did not want Weird Al parodying a song and Weird Al didn't parody his songs. Um, But uh, uh, so anyway, yeah, there was a misunderstanding. This is well-documented. Everybody knows the story where I guess it was uh, Weird Al's management talked to Coolio's management. They said, go ahead and do it. No problem. But their management had not talked to Coolio. So Weird Al thought it was all cool. Turns out it wasn't all cool. They did shake it out uh, at some point they, or hugged it out. And they uh, uh, made up over the whole thing, over the misunderstanding. In 1999, we also see Running With Scissors, um, which has – some of Al's strongest material, I think, in in a long time. You have the Saga Begins, which is uh, to the tune of American Pie, and that is the basically the entire summary of the Phantom Menace movie. You got Pretty Fly for a Rabbi, that was a good one. Uh, you have Albuquerque, which was uh, one of Al's really long songs that he would do about a road trip or adventures and stuff. And then you have one of my favorite Weird Al songs, It's All About the Pentiums which has uh, some of the funniest lines. It has a couple that I'm not sure if he, if you're releasing it today, I'm not saying that people wouldn't do it. I'm saying, I don't know that weird Al would do it because he is so sensitive. Um, You know, saying that uh, uh, your computer is so slow. It's as useless as JPEGs to Helen Keller. I don't know that that's a joke that weird Al would make today, Um, but we sure thought it was pretty funny back then. Also, uh, it's all about the Pentiums, which was a parody of it's all about the Benjamins is um, one of those songs. And there would be some more of these coming up in the future, but was one of those songs that let people know, or specifically it let me know that weird Al used computers and knew a lot about computers. So there's a lot of computer related jokes 
in It's All About the Pentiums. Uh, he makes a joke about news groups. He says, you've got your own news group, alt total loser. I mean, that's a that's a pretty deep cut joke. I don't think a lot of people are making uh, jokes on the names of news groups, you know? Um, and then there's one joke that I find completely offensive in that song where he is talking about uh, dogging another guy's computer about how terrible it is. Cause it's not a Pentium. And he says, uh, your Commodore 64 is really neato. What kind of chip you got in there? A Dorito. Not funny, Al. Why you got to go after the Commodore 64? I'm just saying. Missed opportunity. A rare miss by Weird Al. Anyway. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I did. I remember I bought Running With Scissors. In fact, I went to a record store and I bought Running With Scissors and they were having a giveaway. They had uh, some free posters of the album cover and it was Al like running a marathon and he, or not a marathon, like on a track, like on track day. And he was crossing the finish line and he was holding up scissors. And I had that poster hanging in my room for a long time. I don't know that a lot of people had weird Al posters hanging up, uh, especially in 1999, which would have meant I was already married. <laughs> <laughs> and in my computer room, I had a Weird Al poster hanging up, but I had that hanging up uh, for quite some time. Um, but again, uh, you know, like I said, once I started buying the CDs, uh, whether or not I knew it was going to be a good album, when I knew Weird Al had a new uh, album coming out, I would buy the CD. Um, and I, I just, like I said, I had already gone back and bought all the old ones uh, that I knew about. And in fact... Uh, once I started doing this, I discovered that Weird Al had uh, a first album that was before in 3D. And this is the one, I mean, it's not a secret. It's just, I didn't know about it, but it was the one that has I Love Rocky Road. Um, it has uh, Oh Ricky, which is uh, Lucille Ball, you know, Oh Ricky, You're So Fine. Um, all those songs on it. It has Mr. Frump and the Iron Lung. <laughs> which is a funny song. Uh, and it has uh, a song on there called got a boogie, uh, which I used to play in the car when we would babysit my nieces who were you know, young children, five, six years old. Um, and it's a, it's like a disco dance song. I got a boogie, you know? Uh, and then the punchline after he keeps saying, I got a boogie is he says, I got a boogie on my finger and I can't shake it off. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's, dumb humor, right? I mean, that's dumb kid humor, but my nieces loved that song and my nieces would just walk around the house with their finger up going, I got a boogie. <laughs> so that that's me spreading uh, the Weird Al joy to multiple generations, uh, which is something that I did uh, and, and would continue to do. And you're going to hear about that here in a minute. Uh, I would say in 1995, 96, uh, I, I got on the internet in 1994 for the first time, but in 95 is when I first got access to the World Wide Web. And I believe 96, 95, 96 is when I started getting MP3s. And there were a lot of MP3s online that said uh, Weird Al, and then it would be some song I had never heard of before. And it turns out that these were parodies that were not uh, by Weird Al, but people had mislabeled them. So uh, this was a time you would get on Napster and type in Weird Al and you would find all these weird parodies, you know. And I think Weird Al has gone on the record and said that 
a lot of those were like dirty songs or mean spirited. And he was really offended that people would put weird Al and then put the name, you know, put his name to some of these songs. But, um, but I do definitely remember downloading songs and thinking, you know, are these weird Al songs? Are these not weird Al songs? You know, I didn't know. Um, around that same time was when the weird Al's television show came and quickly went, (laughs) Uh, Weird Al had a Saturday morning TV show that came on in 1997. Uh, it was a Saturday morning show that aired on CBS. It aired from September to December of 1997. So it was on the air for four months. There's only 13 episodes. Um, there's kind of a weird backstory to this. Uh, CBS basically had this requirement to meet educational programming. I believe they, they use the term educational slash informative programming, but they were looking for programs for children and Weird Al had been trying, you know, since the UHF days, trying to get a TV show. This would have been, um, you know, 10 years after UHF. So he's trying to get this TV show and CBS says, well, we need uh, an educational show. And so they kind of plugged Weird Al into this and Weird Al knew it was not the type of show that he wanted to do. They didn't like Weird Al's humor. A lot of changes were made and they were constantly butting heads and stuff. And so the show only ran for 13 episodes. It didn't, didn't run very long. It kind of had this feeling that it was similar to Pee Wee's Playhouse. In fact, uh, they had the same set designer. They brought in the same set designer that had worked on Pee Wee's Playhouse. And the setup was kind of the same where uh, Weird Al, you know, lives in this, this house and, and guests come over and then there's a theme for the show. So it was very similar to, um, you know, the Pee Wee's Playhouse, but it just really wasn't a good fit. And of course, Al, you know, tried to push some of the humor boundaries, but because it was a quote unquote educational show, there was a lot of stuff that got uh, cut out. So uh, it didn't last long. And uh, I think by the time I heard about it, it had already gone off the air. And I'm, I may have caught some reruns at the time, but I, I certainly didn't know it was coming. Uh, and, and by the time I knew it was coming, it had already went, (laughs) um, for the record, you can find this box set on eBay. It's about $40. I looked it up a lot of it. There's a lot for sale that are $40 or best offer. And there's a lot of them. So you might be able to get a good deal on that. It's also, uh, available on Amazon prime. Um, but I think, I think it's one of those that you have to pay for. I don't think you get it free with Amazon prime. I think you have to pay per episode or something like that. So, um, or you could probably find it somewhere else if you looked hard enough, but, uh, yeah, the weird Al TV show was kind of this weird blip that, um, again, that's where I thought weird Al was going after UHF and, um, it just, just didn't pan out, you know? Now, I remember in 1999, I believe, is when I got my first DVD player. I was a little bit behind the curve on that. And uh, shortly after that, maybe early 2000, there was a DVD called Weird Al Yankovic, The Videos. And it was a DVD, and it had all of Weird Al's videos on DVD. And I bought that. I thought it was super cool. And then right after that, there was another DVD called Weird Al Live. Um, and I got that on DVD. So I was excited that, uh, I was able to start buying these things on DVD of Weird Al and watch them at home. But the DVD that 
was probably the biggest, uh, had the, the most effect on me was the UHF DVD, which was released in June of 2002. So I don't, I don't remember exactly when I got it. It would have been late 2002, maybe early 2003 when I got the uh, UHF uh, DVD, but I was a, a big fan of DVDs because of commentary tracks. I know that DVDs gave us better quality than we had on VHS and, 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 uh, you know, they would say, Oh, it includes a trailer or does this or that. But the selling point for me was commentary tracks. I loved, and to this day, absolutely love commentary tracks. I will watch a movie. I'm not interested in at all. If it has a commentary track, just to listen to what the actors or the writers or directors or producer, whoever they have on the track, whatever they have to say, I, I just absolutely love. I just bought, um, there was a Omen, the Omen on Blu-ray, a five movie Blu-ray pack. Um, and I have the Omen, you know, I already own it, but I found this Blu-ray pack, uh, that has commentary tracks and stuff. And in fact, I just picked up, um, Planet of the Apes on Blu-ray for the commentary, just so I can listen to that. So anyway, big fan of commentary tracks. And I, I would have got UHF anyway on DVD, but I was very excited to learn that it has a commentary track by Weird Al. And so I, I got this DVD and I'm listening to the commentary track of UHF. And he says at the very beginning, he says, I don't know if, if people know this, but UHF, uh, part of it was filmed on sound stages, of course, in, in Los Angeles, but, uh, a big portion of the movie was filmed in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma is about a two hour drive from me. And I vaguely remember that happening back in the early eighties, but I had probably forgot it when I watched uh, the, the DVD for the first time. And so as you're watching the DVD, I, Al must've had this information in front of him. Uh, I, I don't believe that he has all this stuff memorized, but he presents it as if it's memorized. And so as he's, uh, showing the, uh, the DVD, like he, they go to a location and he says, Oh, uh, that was uh, the karate studio, which is actually such and such building, which is located at one, two, three, whatever street, you know? And so it kind of becomes this running joke on the DVD that he gives the address, the actual physical address location of every single um, shooting location. So he gives the address to Burger World, which is the burger place that he and, and his uh, friend and roommate Bob uh, work at. He gives the address to uh, his apartment, which is above from the karate school. He gives the apartment or the, you know, the address to all these different places uh, that are on the DVD. And I came up with the idea of visiting them all. And so what I did was uh, early on in the, the spring or maybe summer of 2003, I took a road trip and I went to Tulsa and I brought the DVD. Uh, I had a laptop and, and I mean, I really want to set this picture or, or because saying, explaining this now, people go, this is not a big deal. Uh, because if you were going to do it today, you would take printouts, uh, which I should have taken printouts of the locations anyway, but, um, I took a laptop that would only run for a few hours. This is before smartphones. So I did not have a smartphone to take pictures with or 
a GPS. So I was running, um, I think it was called Microsoft Map Point <laughs> on my laptop to find these locations and drive around. A friend rode with me to help me navigate while I would look for locations and things like that. And so then what we did was we would get the DVD to that scene and then line up the exact shot. And I would get out with my digital camera and take the exact same picture. And so you could compare it then and now. Um, now it didn't line up exactly year wise. And I think I fudged it, uh, by saying that, I mean, this website is no, it's called UHF, my 15 year pilgrimage. Now it's not exactly 15 years because that would have been 1989 and 2002. But basically the way it worked is that I said, well, they had filmed it a year before. So that that's how I got to the 15 years, but, but that's how I got it to line up. Um, and so I made this webpage and it's at robohara.com forward slash UHF. And if you go there, you could see the, the pictures as, or the locations as they appear in the movie. And then you could see my pictures that I took 15 years later. And there are some pictures that have like a tree and you can see that in the movie, it's a little tiny tree and 15 years later, it's a big giant tree, you know? Uh, and, and the big disappointment at the end, not to spoil the website for you, but the location that we had been saving for the end of the trip was actual channel 62, the UHF station. And when we finally pulled up there, the station is gone. <laughs> it's been knocked down and it wasn't a real radio station. Anyway, it was some sort of like power station for radios or something, but, but it was gone. It was just a, we found the road and found the parking lot, but the building itself was gone. So that was, that was kind of a bummer, but I put this online and uh, it has consistently got hits. Uh, I put this website online in 2003, which, oh my gosh, I just realized it's 20 years ago. But I put this website up 20 years ago, and it still gets hits to this day. And why does it get hits? Because a few months after I put it online, I got an email from John Bermuda Schwartz. Now, John Bermuda Schwartz, as I mentioned before, is Weird Al's drummer. But he also managed Weird Al's website. He had done all the HTML and set everything up for Weird Al's, uh, the, the band's first website. And he emailed me and said, love the Weird Al, the UHF tour. Do you mind if I link to it from our website? And I replied to him and said, that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, please do. And so if you go to weirdal.com, and uh, I think it's maybe under archives or something uh, to get to where the links are, but they have a, a page that has links and there's not, I mean, there's not that many, like 30 or 40 links to um, different pages, but uh, the link to my website is still there. Uh, the link to robohara.com forward slash UHF is still on Weird Al's website. So uh, it doesn't get as much traffic as it used to. And I've thought about doing it again. And, you know, now, if it's been 20 years, this would be the 35th anniversary. And it might be interesting to go back and and look and see what it is today. And, of course, uh, with the technology, it would be so much easier today. I mean, I was driving around with a, a, a laptop running a map software with a, a, a GPS connected to the serial port running off of a DVD and trying to look at you know, a movie on a laptop screen and stuff. So yeah, it would be a lot easier with a GPS and a smartphone. I'll give you that. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a really cool interaction I had and a little connection that I had with, uh, Weird Al and, uh, and his website specifically with, uh, John Bermuda Schwartz. Uh, that same year in August, 2003, I saw Weird Al live for the first time. Weird Al came to Oklahoma city on his, uh, supporting poodle hat, which was uh, one of his albums. And he played the Coca-Cola Bricktown event center. Now, I didn't know what to expect from a Weird Al concert. And let me tell you, if you've not seen Weird Al perform live, he is one of the greatest live performers. Um, he is known for, he dresses up in the costumes as they appear uh, in the music video. So he dresses up as Kurt Cobain when they play Smells Like Nirvana. He dresses up in the giant fat suit from uh, the video for Fat. Uh, which is the parody of bad. Um, and he goes through, you know, multiple costume changes like that throughout the show. He also ends the show with a huge, uh, star Wars number. Sometimes he does, um, um, uh, the, uh, Phantom Menace song and then, but he always does Yoda. And then there's a part of the show called the Yoda chant, which for a long time, the only way to hear the Yoda chant, it's like this long chant that has grown over time of gibberish and different things. And the whole band does it. It's a big breakdown and they do it in the middle of the song Yoda. And no one knew except for the people that went to the show. It was not on any DVDs uh, or CDs or albums or anything. You only got to hear it by going to the show and hearing it. So that was the first time I heard the Yoda chant. Uh, when I went to see him, I don't remember if it was that time or the second time, but he would, he started leveraging the, um, 501st Legion, which is the official star Wars, uh, cosplay groups in different cities. And he would have people show up. And so during the, f the finale where he's singing Yoda, uh, he would have guys in stormtrooper costumes, like it would be local at every city, but people in stormtrooper costumes would come out um, and be on stage or, or whatever costumes they, they had dressed up in. So it's, it's really just to absolutely. Also, he does. He has all these parodies that are like video parodies. Like he has a parody where he's interviewing Eminem. And, and I think I'm sure these video clips are available now on YouTube, but at the time you had to go to the show, uh, to see him and they're really, really funny. So, uh, I saw him live in 2003, like I said, and then in 2008, I had the opportunity. I got some tickets to go see him in Wichita, Kansas, which was, um, I think about a five hour, three to five hour, maybe a three hour drive. I don't remember, but maybe three hours. Uh, but I took Mason. And so that was Mason's first official concert. Um, I mean, this was uh, 2008. So he would have been seven years old. So a little younger than I was when I first saw Weird Al, but I bought him a Weird Al t-shirt at the show, which I want to say a Weird Al t-shirt at the show is probably about 60 or $70. Crazy. Um, but, uh, we did that. And then I have seen him a third and a fourth time. And the third and fourth time is with my entire family. Uh, it's a family friendly show. It's very fun. Uh, and me, my wife and my son and my daughter all saw Weird Al. We saw him together in 2013 and then we saw him again in 2017. So I've seen Weird Al four times live. Uh, my son Mason has seen him three times live and then my wife and my daughter have seen him twice. Uh, but again, 
<clears throat> would I go see him again? Maybe if 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 the situation was right. Um, I don't want to see the the exact same show that I saw before. You know, as part of the problem, but. Uh, I know he does change his show over time. He does update it and he does different set lists and things like that. So, so anyway, I would go see him again. I would go see him again. I don't want to uh, rule that out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I had kind of turned my nieces on to Weird Al when they were kids. And then at this point, I had also turned my children on to Weird Al. And they were at just the right age to soak it up. They thought he was hilarious. I mean, the song Got a Boogie is fun to seven-year-olds no matter what decade they get introduced to the song. And, um, in, uh, when Mesa was 10 years old, when my son was 10, uh, they had a talent show at school and he said he wanted to perform in the talent show. And I was like, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to learn how to juggle. You're going to do something. He says, no, I'm going to sing the white stuff. <laughs> now the white stuff is a song about Oreo cookies and it's a parody of new kids on the block, the right stuff. Uh, and so I downloaded a karaoke version of uh, new kids on the block, the right stuff, uh, which w with no, with no vocals works just fine for the white stuff. And we built this costume for Mason. It was like a, like one of those sandwich board kind of costumes. And it was a big round brown piece of cardboard that looked like an Oreo cookie on the front and back. And then he wore all white underneath white clothes. And he had these big, I think they came from Disneyland. They're like Mickey mouse gloves, but they're big giant oversized gloves. And, um, he stood on stage with this karaoke track playing all by himself and saying, Weird Al's the white stuff. I have a video recording of this. It's adorable, in my opinion. Uh, and I put it on YouTube. And YouTube, uh, the um, copyright blocked it and said that it was a that it was a version of New Kids on the Block, the right stuff, which it's not. It's a, it's a Weird Al. It's a, it's a copy of Weird Al's song, not a copy of New Kids on the Block, but apparently it can't tell the difference. And it said your options are to – you could leave the video up but without any audio, which is kind of stupid. Uh, and so instead I just deleted the video. Um, but I, I deleted it off of YouTube. I still have a copy of it to this day. And um makes me proud that um, uh, my kids you know, also embraced the same humor of Weird Al, the same like I had done uh, when I was their age as well. Weird Al stopped releasing albums – in 2014, his last album was an album called Mandatory Fun. And, uh, you know, I kind of understand why. I mean, at that age, let's see, Weird Al would have been, he had just turned, he was just over 50. And, uh, you know, in the 80s, he was listening to, to 80s pop music, like all of us were, and doing parodies of 80s pop music. But, on his last couple of albums, he was doing parodies of Miley Cyrus songs and Lady Gaga songs. And those are the big pop hits at the time. And you have to do parodies of those things. But I don't know that that's the music that Weird Al is listening to. I mean, I don't personally know, but it doesn't seem like that's something that he would be listening to. And more importantly, it's not what I was listening to, you know? So, um, I mean, he, he did do, um, uh, you know, so like a style parody of the Pixies on one of his last couple of albums. He did a style parody of, 
Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones off the top of my head. Uh, the White Stripes. He did one of Rage Against the Machine, like those type of things. So, you know, there's stuff there for me, but not the big stuff. The big stuff that he has to go after is whatever the big hot music trend is. And whatever the hot music trend is at the moment is not what I'm probably going to be into, you know. So 2014 was um, the last album on Al's recording contract as well. That was, again, mandatory fun. And so after that, he said he was not looking for a new contract, that instead he was going to start releasing digital singles. And, and there was a big thing about it at the time. And he said, you know, first of all, by doing digital singles, he could react much more quickly. If there was a hit song, he could write a parody, get into the studio, record it, and have a single out in a week or two, you know, as opposed to something like um even uh, off the deep end i mean and i just know this cuz i was just looking at the dates but you know nirvana um smells like teen spirit that's august of 91 off the deep end is is april of 92 so more than 6 months later 8 months later you know and that was that's a quick response time but but now with digital you know you could do it within a a, a couple of weeks right um so that was a big thing that was being talked about at the time that he wasn't going to have a record label. He was just going to do these digital songs. Um, but then what happened is that there really weren't any digital songs. Um, you know, not, not like what was being advertised. What, what he was talking about was that, I mean, I assume the way he was talking that three or four times a year, he would release a single and that really didn't materialize. He just kind of, you know, slipped away. I mean, he went back into touring and stuff, but as far as new material, it just kind of stopped. Now in 2017, which is three years after mandatory fun, uh, Al released permanent record. And this was his all encompassing box set. And it came in a box that looked like an accordion. It looked like the accordion he played and it contained all 14 of his albums plus a 15th CD that was full of rarities that had not been released. I did not buy the permanent record box set, not because I don't love Weird Al, but because I had spent all this time and money purchasing every CD. It was kind of a point of pride for me. Like I'm showing support for the artist by buying the previous album. So I already owned all 14 albums on CD. So I couldn't justify spending a couple hundred dollars to own them all a second time. Uh, and so, but the rarities CD has some great stuff on it. Probably the most famous song that's on there is a song called Pac-Man, which is sung to the tune of the Beatles tax man. It was one of weird Al's very earliest parodies that he had sent to Dr. Demento. Dr. Demento played it for less than a month and then got a cease and desist and said, stop playing that. And I don't know if it's, if it was ever, uh, explained who the cease and desist was from, but, uh, Al has said in interviews that to get Pac-Man released in the box set, he had to get approval both from a Namco because it has actual Pac-Man samples on it. And he had to get approval from George Harrison's estate. And he got approval from uh, George Harrison's son, Danny, uh, who, who enjoyed weird Al and stuff. And so, so they, they got it worked out, but 
But yeah, there was this whole this whole thing that was being pushed about digital singles, and uh, there really wasn't anything like that. Not not like you know what they had been talking about. So it's funny, you know. I did mention that I have every album, every Weird Al album on CD. It he may be the only artist. I mean, and I would have to preface this by saying, like, maybe it's the only artist that has more than a few out. I mean, I'm sure there's artists that I have a CD that only put out one CD. So of course I would have every one of their CDs. Right. And, um, you know, there's, there's artists like, I don't know, maybe like the beastie boys or, or somebody that, that, um, didn't have, you know what? I, I think I have every Motley Crue CD now that I say that. So, but I definitely, I would, I could say this, I, let me, let me phrase it this way. I have more weird Al CDs, physical CDs than I have of any other artist. So I have more weird Al CDs than I have. Um, I don't think I have 14 CDs and, and I have more than that because there's also some greatest hits, CDs that he put out and then he put out some themed CDs like the food album and the TV album. And I have all those. So I probably have closer to like 20 weird Al CDs. If I were to actually go through, go pull them out of the garage and go look. Um, one of the funny things about his CDs later on is that, uh, as time went on and of course, as the internet became what it is, uh, his albums would leak on the internet. So I, I specifically remember, uh, Al or uh, Al Apocalypse and Mandatory Fun. Uh, I had downloaded those before the albums were released in stores. Like I, I know that I had Al Apocalypse like three days before it came out in stores, and the day it came out in stores, I went right down there and I bought the CD, uh, and I just ran across it. It was sitting out on a shelf in my garage, and I, I never opened it. It's never the cellophane is still on there. I think I got it from Walmart actually, as the sticker that's on it. But uh, I, but I never actually opened it. But uh, you know, there are certain artists that you just feel a loyalty to, and uh, I just wanted those numbers, like you know, day one sales or whatever, whatever the opening day sales or opening weekend, and you want to get him up maybe on the charts if that's possible. Um, but you know, you don't want to rip off the artists that you really like. I mean that that's how. There was a time <laughs> that's how they were making their money. Now it's not really true anymore. Now they're making their money uh, by touring, you know, and so that's why uh, it's more important to me now to go to a Weird Al concert than than purchase, you know, the box set or something like that. But, um, but yeah, um, you know, even the ones that I was able to download, I definitely went and bought the physical CD just because, um, you know, because I love I love Weird Al. Uh, along with all the CDs, I'll mention that I have a couple of Weird Al books. I have one that's just called Weird Al the Book, uh, which is, I think, a companion piece to something. But it's a, uh, you know, like the story, Weird Al's entire story. And I also have one that's a little bit harder to find. It's called Black and White and Weird All Over, which is a book of photographs that were taken by John Bermuda Swartz uh, in the early days when Al was really taken off, I think it's like 83 to 86, I think is, is the range, um, that it covers. There are some other weird Al books out there, but those are the, the two, um, that I have. But again, the last, uh, CD of new material, the full CD that was released was, uh, 2014. And other than that, and the box set, everything just kind of died off and, 
you know, I remember the days of the 80s where he was doing an album every year. It's like boom, 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 84, 85, 86. And then in the 90s, it was like every two or three years, like 93, 96, 99. Every three years, you get a Weird Al. And then it slows down. And then from 2014, there's just nothing, you know. And so I just basically had kind of written off Weird Al as a touring act. And then in 2022, actually probably in 2021, we started seeing these things that said, Weird Al's working on a movie. And I was like, ooh, is it going to be like UHF? They said, no, it's going to be a a biopic pick. And I'm like, well, I kind of already seen Weird Al behind the music. I've seen all these things. But they said, no, it's not going to be like a normal biopic. It's going to be like a, a parody biopic. And I said, well, I said, self. <laughs> when I talked to myself, I said, self. This sounds interesting. And so uh, that became Weird. The Al Yankovic story, which was released uh, by Roku in 2022, it starred Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. Uh, you know, I I don't know exactly what to say. At first, I, I didn't love it, but but it grew on me. Um, and and uh, by, I mean, by the just like the first viewing, by the end of it, I was like, I see where they're going with this. I like it. It got some kind of negative reviews. Some people didn't either get the joke or, uh, but, but I thought it, it's like weird Al. It's like him doing something new, but also doing something familiar. I mean, doing a parody, which is what weird Al based his career on, but doing a parody, but doing a parody of a movie, doing a parody of his own life. That's a funny idea, you know? Um, and, uh, and and there's some funny – there's a lot of funny stuff. If you haven't seen that movie and you have any interest at all in Weird Al, you should definitely definitely go see that. Uh, there's also a soundtrack to that movie. Uh, he re-recorded all of the old songs that reappear or that appear in that movie, like My Bologna and stuff like that. He, he re, re-recorded them. Uh, they said that it's because – that the older ones would ha- would have had to been remastered and it wouldn't have sounded good. You couldn't use them in a, a movie. I've never found this officially anywhere, but I have this weird suspicion that there's some sort of rights issue because a lot of those early songs are on Scotty brothers, which he's no longer with. Um, well, all the songs would be from record companies that he's no longer with. So I got a weird feeling that there's something to do with that, but I've never been able to track that down exactly and find that that was the reason, but that, that was my, my first hunch. Uh, and I'm sticking with that. So, um, but, uh, um, I did eventually buy that as well. So I, I just couldn't stand having one weird Al CD out there that I, I didn't own. And so I ended up buying that as well. I'm not going to go through an entire album by album list or anything, but as I was doing this work, I kept writing down, you know, making notes of my favorite Weird Al songs. And I said, I I just, I just have to present my top 10 list, my top 10 list of my favorite Weird Al songs. And I said, I'm only going to write down my favorite ones. And my first attempt at the list was 27 songs. So I had to pare it down. I had to pare it down. I had to cut some really, really 
great songs to get this down to 10. And so I'll cheat a little bit um, and, and you'll find that out. But um, these are kind of, let's just say <clears throat> this is kind of in order, counting down from 10 to number one of my top 10 favorite Weird Al songs. Number 10. Uh, and by the way, I didn't include any of the uh, polka parodies on this list because that would just be, it would just complicate things too much. So, um, but some of these are original, some are parodies, but anyway, number 10, uh, is, uh, one more minute. And this is uh, a love song that weird Al actually wrote after he broke up, uh, with his girlfriend at the time. Uh, and it's a list of things that he would rather do than spend one more minute, uh, with his ex-girlfriend. He would rather, um, have his blood sucked out by leeches, <laughs> have an ice pick shoved under a toenail or two. I'd rather clean. I'm not going to see everyone. I'd rather clean all the bathrooms in Grand Central Station with my tongue <laughs> than spend one more minute with you. Um, I put it as a runner up on that one. I put uh, You Don't Love Me Anymore, which is a uh, a similar Style. It's more of a parody style. I think of extremes uh, more than words is what he was going for. But it's a it's a similar uh, themed song. You know, uh, it's the same kind of thing. It's just a list of things that uh, his girlfriend or or wife has done uh, to him to hurt him over time. So similar kind of theme. But yeah, number ten. One more minute by Weird Al. Number nine. I put trapped in the drive through. This is one of Weirdell's many uh, long, uh, drawn-out songs. Um, so other songs that would be like this would be The Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota, Albuquerque, uh, Confessions Part 3. Those are all you know songs that just have a really long list of uh, jokes. So Trapped in the Drive-Thru is just uh, a really, really long song about trying to decide what they want for dinner. And then going to the drive-thru and ordering it. <laughs> I just don't want to deliver. <laughs> God, these songs, man, make me laugh. Uh, so number nine, Trapped in the Drive-Thru. Again, it probably could have switched out with any of those songs that are all kind of the same style, but that's the one I went with. Uh, number eight is one of his newer songs. It's CNR, which stands for Charles Nelson Riley. This is done in the uh, the parody of the style of the White Stripes. Um, and it's just all these crazy legendary things that Charles Nelson Riley had done, um, that he's just this super dude. Um, you know, every now and then there's a, a song, a Weird Al song that you like the topic and you like the lyrics, but you also really like musically and Charles Nelson Riley, uh, the song CNR done in the style of the white stripes is a, is a good rocking tune. And so I've always liked that one. Uh, number seven is the song Foil, uh, which is uh, probably – it's an okay song. It's a parody of uh, Royals, which was uh, the uh, Lord song, hit song that was everywhere. It's a very stripped-down song. And, and one of the things that, that you see over time with Weird Al is that, you know, the earlier songs, like if you're going to do a parody of Beat It – um, which, by the way, has, happens to have a guitar solo by Eddie Van Halen in the middle of it. Your band has to be able to, to play that song, and somebody's got to play that solo, which um, 
trivia fact was done by Rick Derringer, who um, uh, actually produced several of uh, Weird Al's early earlier albums. But um, you know, as as time moved on, when he started parroting you know rap songs and songs like this, I think it became much easier because in electric, you know, all you got to do is find whatever synthesizer or drum machine they used to make the drum beat. Uh, and then you have the exact sound, you know? And so, uh, the song foil sounds exactly like Royals. Um, and, uh, but it, this is a funny song and it's, it's just as funny because of the video. So the whole first verse is about, you know, when you have leftovers, you got to cover it with aluminum foil. I mean, that's really the joke. Uh, and then it slips into this dark thing where, it's talking about conspiracy theories and the Illuminati and, and lizard people and stuff, uh, but they can't get him because he wears a hat made of aluminum foil. And so he brings it back around. So it's, it's a song all about aluminum foil and it's multiple uses. Um, Patton Oswald is in the video. If you like Patton Oswald, I think he's one of the lizard people. Uh, so, if you haven't seen any of these videos, um, you could definitely find them on YouTube. If nowhere, if, if, uh, nowhere else, Foil, though, is number seven. Funny song. Number six is Word Crimes, which is a parody of Blurred Lines. Uh, again, musically, I think this sounds identical to the original, but um, this is where not we get some of Weird Al's – like, not only do we get a fast – delivery and we get a lot of different voices and tones from weird Al, but it's also the whole thing is a parody of English and grammar. And so if you're a guy who has a degree in writing, like I do, you're going to find this song pretty funny. I mean, he makes jokes about apostrophes and, <laughs> and you know, the dangling participles and things like that. So kind of nerd humor, but a lot of weird Al's nerd humor. So that's okay. Um, but I've always enjoyed that one. Number five, I had to go with Yoda, the old classic. Um, uh, you know, it's Star Wars, it's Lola, it's Yoda. Um, you know, the the saga begins is a, is a great Star Wars parody, but it's Phantom Menace. And um, <clears throat> if you want Star Wars, you got to go classic. You got to go Yoda, and so I put that as number five. Number four, we talked about this song. It's all about the the Pentiums. Uh, it's got news group jokes. It's got Helen Keller joke in the middle of it. Um, it's got references to um, uh, Bill Gates. He says he calls him money for short. <laughs> um, it has a very unfortunate joke about Commodore 64, but I'll let it slide. Um, but a uh, funny joke about computers. I mean, a funny you know song about computers and stuff. So all about the Pentiums. Uh comes in at number four on the list. Number three, um, I mean, these top three could all fight it out, but um, number three, I put Midnight Star. Now, Midnight Star, uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, Midnight Star is a, a pretend tabloid newspaper, and so the whole uh, song is about the headlines that he saw in the Midnight Star. And... Um, uh, he said it was prompted when he actually saw a real uh, headline about the incredible 
Frog Boy <laughs> is on the loose, uh, which I think was a predecessor to Bat Boy, if you follow Weekly World News. Um, but it's all those those silly headlines. You know, if you were from the 80s and you would go check out and you would see the Inquirer and the Weekly World News and all those dumb tabloids that would be there. Um, it, it's that kind of, of song. Uh, but I've always I've always liked it. I listened to this song so much that when I was a kid, I thought there was an official video for this song, but I guess he never released a, a real video. It's just pictures that I've put together in my head. I've listened to it so many times that I thought there was an official video, but um, I guess not. Uh, but one of my favorites, Midnight Star, that's number three on the list. Number two, White and Nerdy. Now, White and Nerdy is a parody of the rap song Riding, which is about riding dirty. And uh, this is about how he embraces the fact that he is white and nerdy. Uh, there's a, in the video, there's a key and peel. If you know who they are, they make a, a cameo appearance. They are the gangsters. Um, this really puts weird Al's rapping ability uh, on the, on spotlight. I mean, and he's really good. And there are so many funny jokes. And there's a few that's dated, uh, and you know, he, he references, um, you know, people are fighting to be on his top eight spaces on MySpace, and that's a little outdated, you know, but, but, um, uh, most, most of it is, is really timely. And the video is so funny because it's, it's got all the stuff that's in the, uh, in the song, but there's additional jokes. Like there's a part where he, it looks like he's making a drug deal and he buys something and it's in a paper bag. And then when he gets out, it's a bootleg of the star Wars holiday special. <laughs> I mean, that's a funny joke, you know, um, there's a, just a couple of jokes, uh, you know, that go fast, but if you are a technical people, which I know you guys are and nerdy people. And some of you are, um, th there's stuff in there, you know, like when he's talking about languages that he's, uh, fluent in, he says he's fluent in JavaScript as well as Klingon. You know, that's funny. Um, and, um, when he's talking about, um, you know, in school, he says, the only question I ever thought was hard was, do I like Kirk or do I like Picard? <laughs> you know, um, it's those kind of things that, that, uh, uh, it's not just making a rhyme for the sake of having things rhyme. You know, I mean, I think some, like there's stuff in eat it, uh, you know, the early stuff where it's just, uh, there there's jokes, but a lot of them are easy, low hanging fruit jokes just because they rhyme. But this is really advanced writing. If you, if you listen to white and nerdy. So if you haven't seen the video, it's a great video. If you haven't heard the song, I'm sure most of you have, but uh, white and nerdy is number two. Number one, dare to be stupid. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's the motto. It's the mantra. It's the, uh, it's the thing that told us that we could, it was, you didn't have to be embarrassed about being a weird Al fan. You didn't have to be embarrassed about being a weird guy that, you know, wanted to, uh, look gift horses in the mouth <laughs> and all the silly things that are in that song. Um, it, it's, um, just, just a classic and, um, and it's probably my favorite weird Al song. Now I did cheat slightly and i put down one honorable mention um and that was uh, i love my pancreas my wife absolutely loves that song it is a piece of studio wizardry and it is done in the style of the beach boys so if you know like the beach boys and the dennis wilson um 
in the era where they were just doing uh, masterful things in the studio. It's like that. It's just harmonies and instruments and crazy things. Uh, and it is, uh, an absolute, uh, masterpiece. It's not one that I just, I mean, I do like it, but, uh, just, just for some reason, I just didn't put it on the top 10, but my wife said she'd kill me if I didn't include it. So I'm throwing in, uh, I love my pancreas as honorable mention. Now, did your favorite weird Al song make the top 10 list? If it didn't send me an email, uh, send me an email to Rob O'Hara at Rob O'Hara.com and let me know. And I'll talk about it on a future show. You know, to wrap this up, I got to talk about the future of Weird Al. I don't really know what that looks like. Uh, I don't really listen to pop music. Um, I've I've become the guy who watches the Super Bowl and doesn't always know who the halftime performer is, or if I do, I don't know the music. Um, I looked it up, and Weird Al is currently sixty three years old, so I can't imagine he's listening to that same stuff either. Uh, so I don't know what his parodies are going to look like if he continues to make them in the future. And obviously the music industry isn't what it was when he started in the eighties. It's not, um, album driven per se, and it's not about album sales. So what I see for the future of weird Al is, um, he will continue to tour. Uh, he sells out his tours, um, everywhere he goes, he will continue to play his old songs, and if he has new parodies or things like that, that's probably where you'll hear him. You'll see him. He'll slip him into the live shows and do things like that, which, I mean, I, when I saw him live, every now and then he would play a song that wasn't on any of the albums, you know, and it was just a, a little treat for the fans. So I think that's probably what I think Weird Al's future um, looks like. Uh, I would like to see him do some sort of YouTube show, maybe where he talks about the the songs and behind the music kind of thing, where he does a little weekly show, either where he interviews people or someone, you know, he, someone interviews him and he talks about things. But the problem is about, the problem is that most of those stories have already been told. You know what I mean? Like when you go, Oh, uh, smells like Nirvana. And then he's going to say, yeah, I, I went to Saturday night live and, and I, you know, went up to Nirvana and I asked him if I could do it. And they, and they said, yes, you know, or what? I mean, it's like all those stories are known. So it, he would have to come up with stuff that, that people haven't heard before. But if he were to do that or talk about, you know, maybe the art of parodies or something like that, I would, I would really love to see that because uh, he's just a creative guy. And it kind of seems like, you know, the time ran out, his time ran out with the music industry and the way that he did business, which was releasing full albums and doing stuff like that. So again, I could see him touring in the future, but um, you know, as far as doing another album and stuff like that, I just don't think that'll ever happen. But if he comes on tour here again, I will definitely go. I'll see if my family wants to go. Uh, it does a great live show. And if I can't support him by, uh, buying CDs or anything else like that in the future, I will support him by going to the show. He's uh, one of those rare musical artists that I have enjoyed for 40 years and continue to enjoy this day. So huzzah to weird Al Yankovic. That 
wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flat. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server or leave a message on my podcast hotline at 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered on the podcast or would simply like to support my shows, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara to sign up today and join supporters like Steve Rasmussen, Rick Reynolds, and Matt Nicholson. All my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me, like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flags, Like a Doss, Throwback Reviews, all that good stuff, just go visit podcast.robohara.com for links and information about these shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you now know a little bit more about me and possibly a lot more about Weird Al. Take care, and I'll see you next time.